The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Abrasive Toast Scrape Edition. It's Wednesday, February 7th, 2018. On today's show, Phantom Thread stars Daniel Day-Lewis as a perfectionist monster in the very Henry Jamesian movie from writer-director Paul Thomas Anderson. And then we, the GapFest crew, do one of our absolutely favorite things. That is, we take a field trip to a museum. In this case, we saw the extraordinary David Hockney retrospective at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And finally, Bujo, baby, deadlier than Cujo, sexier than Scar Joe, more lit than Bojack Horseman. Okay, I'll stop. We're talking bullet journaling with Juto. June Thomas. <laughs> Wait, I get to claim that I coinage. totally just stole your joke. <laughs> <laughs> Bujo with Juto. I can't wait. Yeah, we're doing Bujo with Juto. I have no idea why, but I'll learn along with our listeners. Joining me today is uh, Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. You're here in the studio with us. It's so exciting. In the flash. You know why I don't come in and do it, though? Pourquoi? I hate the way you chew, Julia Turner. <laughs> <laughs> it's so audible, incorrigible. <laughs> And, of course, Dana Stevens is Slate's film critic. Hey, Dana. Hey, good morning, Steve. Uh, I don't often do this, but I did read your Phantom Thread review, and it's beautifully written. Oh, oh my gosh. It thank has you. some of that same fine stitching as the movie itself. Oh, thank you. That's lovely to hear. Yeah, it was lovely. All right. Well, digging right in, Phantom Thread is the eighth movie from director Paul Thomas Anderson. He, of course, of Boogie Nights, Magnolia, There Will Be Blood fame, many others. This one stars Daniel Day-Lewis as Reynolds Woodcock, a fashion designer in 1950s London. He makes ladies' dresses for the very, very, very rich. You can add more varies to that as you like. And he is a perfectionist monster who falls in love with Alma, a would-be muse played by Vicky Creeps. And we are left to ask which will win out, her love for him or his claustrophobic fussiness? Let's listen to a clip. Cyril is right. Cyril is always right. And it's not because the fabric is adored by the clients that Cyril is right. It's right because it's right. Because it's beautiful. Maybe one day you'll change your taste, Alma. Maybe not. Maybe you have no taste. Maybe I like my own taste. Yes, just enough to get you into trouble. Perhaps I'm looking for trouble. Stop! All right, well, Dana, I'll turn to you first. This is a smoothie. Um, it's divided critical opinion a little bit more than I would have expected it to. It's uh, itself an act of cinematographic perfectionism. Is very, very finely acted by Daniel Day-Lewis, uh, especially, who claims this is his last film. Uh, for once, I know where you came out on this movie, but why don't you tell our listeners? Yeah. I mean, it, it, we, when we talked about our top 10 list, I believe we may have talked about this movie a little already. And then Dan Coyce endorsed it on the Bizarro Gab Fest the other week when we were out of town. So I think listeners already know that, that in general, this podcast is pro-PTA. Um, to me, this was one of the best movies of the year. I absolutely swoon for it. Um, I'm almost hoping that one of you has something negative to say so that we can have a real conversation because for me, I've seen it twice now. I really want to see it a third time for our conversation, but because of our museum trip, I didn't have time to squeeze in one more viewing. But it's that kind of movie to me that the minute it's over, you think, 
how can I see that again? Mm. Because uh, it's that kind of movie, I think, that the minute it's over, you start to think, how and when can I see that again? Because there's some sort of mystery that it withholds from you. And uh, I want to withhold some of that from our conversation, too. I think this is a movie that should be spoiled as little as possible. But it has this sort of self-contained mystery to it. And I wonder if the two of you sense that as well. It's just such a pleasure to see a movie that's smarter than you are. And I feel like this movie kind of outsmarts me in a way and makes me want to go back to it and try to keep up. Julia, we found a movie that's smarter than Dana Stevens. I don't believe it. Um, But uh, what do you think? What did you think of it? I'm not sure I believe it either. I... So this movie seems made for me, right? I'm interested in fashion, interested in design. My senior thesis was literally about a dressmaking atelier for rich ladies where I spent like months in the archives of a museum surrounded by logbooks and textiles, like trying to imagine what the life was of one of these houses, a much more dowdy one in Providence, Rhode Island. But, you know, this is a world I care about. And I found this movie entrancing and mysterious I found the kind of triple tango between uh, Reynolds Woodcock, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, Alma, played by Vicky Creeps, and uh, Woodcock's sister, Cyril, played by Leslie Manville, beautifully, to be this fascinating, stubborn balance. Like, none of them ever totally has the upper hand, and that's part of what's pleasurable about watching it. Here is what I don't know and would like your thoughts on. Mm-hmm. What does it mean? Oh, <laughs> and maybe that's why it's smarter than us. But like, I think the movie is, you know, ostensibly about love and balance and how much you can be bent to the will of another and how much you must follow your own will and, and the willfulness of the uh, designer who's truly creating new shapes for the world is the stand-in for that. But um, as it takes ever more Baroque and bizarre and kind of gothic turns toward the end. I wasn't quite sure where we were meant to land. Mm. Um, I uh, more or less loved the movie. I was enchanted by it. And it did something that surprised me, which is, um, especially from an American director who I still think of as young, though, of course, he's approaching mid-career now. But um, I believed that I was in that world. It, It didn't seem to me a sort of pathetic, slightly underdrawn facsimile of what that world was like. I, 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 I absolutely believed I was in the upper reaches of the service industry for the upper reaches of the aristocracy in 1950s London. I think that in and of itself was a remarkable achievement. Um, secondly, there's a kind of, you know, the mimetic fallacy states that you don't get to claim that your movie is boring because it's about boredom. You don't get to claim that your movie is... Uh, uh, it's okay that your movie is misogynistic because it's about misogyny, right? I, I felt like this movie um, turned that completely on its head. It, it is an act of claustrophobic perfectionism that is about claustrophobic perfectionism and that echoing effect I found quite powerful. Um, you know, I think the question at the heart of the movie, which is both dramatic and theoretical, is what do you do with a man whose veneration of women is inseparable from his hatred and resentment of them? And the and the absent figure in this film is the mother who lives on in both of her children, both Reynolds Woodcock, who inherited her ability to make exquisite dresses for the rich, and in the sister who's this ice-cold withholding martinet, kind of uh, the autocrat who keeps the business running and moving. I think her performance is really remarkable because you're, I think you're supposed to see that something of this horrible mother has lived on in the sister – 
and continues to both make Reynolds Woodcock, Daniel Day-Lewis, who he is, while also turning him into this monster. And um, one more thing quickly, I thought what the movie did, the movie's very subtle in some ways. I mean, maybe, maybe it's not. Maybe I'm just have an unsubtle mind that mistakes it for subtlety. But it seemed to me quite well done that the movie shows you what he does with the women that he loves, which is he essentially uses them and uh, up as muses and then disposes of them. So there's a clear pattern that the movie does a brilliant job of alluding to without over-dramatizing it at all, which is that he falls in love with the young woman. She becomes his muse. They live together for a while. Uh, and then he disjects them from this heaven that he lives in, this kind of upper aristocratic heaven that he lives in. So the question at the heart of the movie that I think has genuine drama is, is he going to do this to Alma? And Alma turns out to be we don't want to spoil it, but she turns out to be formidable in totally unexpected ways. And in a kind of weird gothic way, I thought that that, that worked uh, totally. I felt pretty hard for this movie. And I, I don't generally love his movies. He's made some that I love and some that I don't at all. I generally do. But I think that this may be one of the greatest. I, I feel like, now, OK, now I can I can hold my banner high because you guys did actually have some some reservations. So to me, Julia, to answer the question of what it's about, I mean, Part of you asking that question goes back to my original statement that this movie has this kind of withholding mystery. It has something about it that you want to return to and, and puzzle out, especially when it takes this turn toward the fairy tale around halfway through that I think it would be a massive spoiler to talk at all about. So I so I don't want yeah. to. But yeah, Stephen, you, you started off your, your summary by calling the Alma character a, a would-be muse. And I would say, in a way, she's almost—it's her refusal of museship. Yes. It's that fact that she's a won't be muse yeah. that that drives the action of the film. And so, in a way, I mean, it would be reductive of this movie to try to call it simply a feminist screed of some sort. And part of what I love about it is that it is—it's—it's it's outside the moment. It could have been made at any time and isn't trying, and it's not straining to comment on the present day. But it is completely, to me, a, a deconstruction of. A uh, traditionally gendered relationship, right? A much older man who's an artist who takes this muse, and as Stephen said, she's part of a, a rotating cycle of muses that's implied or not even implied. You clearly shown at the beginning of the movie, he ejects the previous one the same day he meets her. It almost seems, um, and the movie really takes that apart in a canny way, I think, and ends up being about marriage and gender relations as a, a power struggle that finds its own balance, even in a time when everything in the culture is militating against, you know, the, the woman having any mm -hmm. any power or any say. Yeah. I guess I felt frustrated, though, by what the movie seems to have to say about that. I mean, it's very delightful to watch Alma exert her will, right? She's the dawn. She's, she's waking up his world. She's um, just, as you could hear in the clip, uh, uh, won't be muse is perfect. Like that's exactly what she is. Um, but again, without spoiling the tools that she resorts to, to, uh, force this genius to reckon with her and her will are, I, I had a lot of mixed feelings about them. They, basically assert the kind of power, the only kind of power that women had long had, which is maternal power. They they insert the role of the maternal into their romantic relationship and put her in kind of a dominant slash caretaking role. And that's how she is able to restore the balance of his regard for her whenever it seems to fall out of whack. And the movie seems cool with that in a way that I am not. Like the movie seems to be like, great, great. Uh, Julia, I kept thinking that too. I mean, if I were to 
the only reservation I would have about the movie would be post hoc and totally abstract. Watching the movie, I was totally enwrapped. When the movie came to an end, I felt completely satisfied. The one thing I feel forced to ponder is its relationship to Mother, the Darren Aronofsky movie, which has some of the same sort of theoretical structure of it, of the relationship between a great, possibly frustrated artist and a muse figure. And Aronofsky's movie, it seemed to me, was the mimetic fallacy. It, in fact, was misogynistic and gendered in completely suspect ways. But I, I, I felt like this was such a specific depiction of a specific relationship that one couldn't help feel was real that abstracting out to gender in a quick way was hard to do, at least while one was watching it. Afterwards, absolutely, but during it, you felt as though you were watching two real people. And I think the movie's very in control of what's perverse about the relationship in a way. It doesn't seem to be normalizing either one of their roles uh, and how they play them towards one another. You know, here's something I love about the movie, and I don't think this is an original insight. I feel like I read it, but, you know, The House of Woodcock is a kind of, you know, it's obviously a term of art for a fashion house. And it, it, it shows you the roots of that expression in something concrete, which is, you know, this actual house in which he both lives and performs the function of this couturier. And um, the battle, in a way, between these three combatants is w- what's the definition of house? I mean, is it going to be a domestic home of any kind of traditional sort or not? And that's a death battle between these two women in some respect. And that's played so subtly. I mean, I've never – I mean, I can't – in a way, Dana, I cannot believe what he did, which is he really brought to me some of the suffused, weird, gothic, interpersonal you know, intensity of Henry James into a two-hour two and ten-minute movie which I, I just don't feel like I've ever seen before. Yeah, Henry James is an interesting um, is an interesting reference for this. I hadn't thought of that before. I mean, Hitchcock's Rebecca is, is was explicitly cited by by Anderson as something that he was thinking about and that obviously influenced the structure of it. But you're right, there's a lot of literature in there yeah. as well. I mean, vis-a-vis the relationship and whether it's being, I don't know, like normalized or held up as some sort of, um, you know, either negative or positive model, I feel like this movie operates outside that logic yeah. a bit and that, I don't know, I guess I feel like Julia is maybe underestimating the the kinkiness of this movie. At the end, it, it ends up being this sort of triumph of, of, as you say, perversity, that their relationship functions via um, a kind of you know, sick compromise as so many of our relationships do. And I, I sort of love the movie's dark wit about that. And we haven't mentioned the fact that this movie is very, very funny in yeah. many scenes. Even in the, the clip that we played, I think, the uh, the little marital interactions between them, like the, the noisy toast scraping that our, our episode is named for this week. There's a lot of great scenes at breakfast as the kind of, you know, the reckoning place of, of any domestic relationship. Um, so, yeah, I think it's funny. It's kinky. It's dark. All of that stuff is woven in as well. So if you're putting off seeing this because it seems like some sort of somber, self-important costume drama, it really doesn't have that vibe at all. No, I would. And I I just want to be clear. I think it's wonderful. And I think people should go see it. It's mysterious. It's my favorite word, ensorceling. Like you're sort of lost in this crazy world. And, and all three of the performances are amazing. But just to get to see Daniel Day-Lewis um, inhabit another role in this way is is fun so go see it i just once once i came out and wanted to think about it in my usual way it's a, it's it's a different version of the same thing you're saying it it deflects your efforts to 
untangle it. And mm-hmm. it makes you realize how many movies you walk out of knowing exactly what they wanted you to come away with. Sure. You know, even really good movies that we've seen and talked about on this show. I mean, The Shape of Water just popped into my mind as an example. And Mother is like a, a bad example of such a movie. But, you know, movies that you could come out and just draw a graph of exactly what you're supposed to see, feel, and think at every moment and what the moral of the story is that you come away with. And to me, it's just an incredible intellectual vacation <laughs> to see a movie that doesn't boringly do all that work for yeah, you. Yeah, it's not, it's not overwritten or over um, presented by one tiny wit. And just we're getting to this last, but it is actually the first thing that clobbers you about Phantom Thread. The craft of this movie is just incredible. It was shot on 35 millimeter by Paul Thomas Anderson. He was the cinematographer, which I love because it sort of adds to, you know, he was the couturier of the movie in a way. And he is really the, you know, obsessive, meticulous perfectionist behind this movie. But, uh, you know, the cinematography is absolutely gorgeous. The music, which is by Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead, who also did the incredible score for um, There Will Be Blood 10 years ago, is just perfect. You can hear it a little bit in the background of that mm-hmm. clip that we played, but it's a very old-fashioned score. Sometimes, in fact, I think he incorporates some classical music and previously existing music, but basically, you know, he creates from scratch this sweeping symphonic old Hollywood score with, like, leap motifs to go with the mm-hmm. characters, and it completely stands alone on its own for as, as just beautiful listening and uh, the whole movie has just that sense of, you know, every seam being so carefully mm-hmm. stitched together that it's yeah. it's purely satisfying on that level of craft. Yeah, totally agree. OK, so the movie's Phantom Thread. Please go see it. I would say see it in the theater for a slightly counterintuitive reason. Yes, it's sumptuous visually. You don't want to see it on a tiny screen. The fact that it's funny will come home much more in a live audience. I watched this alone on a small screen and and I understand abstractly that it's funny in parts but i can imagine how well well it would have played with a live audience anyway. there, were, there weren't a lot of like out loud guffaws <laughs> knee slaps but but um but yeah the the communal watching is might carry some of the energy of it Excellent. it's more that yeah the language just has a lot of wit in it like just just as as every shot kind of matters and every sound on the soundtrack matters every word sort of matters in this movie and that that care is beautiful to see Alma. all right um yeah check it out and uh, tell us what you thought about it at facebook.com slash culture fest all right moving on hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting go to your happy place for a happy price Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, before we move on, let's do the business. We are super excited to announce that we'll be having a live show at the Bell House in beautiful Gowanus, Brooklyn, on March 7th at 7 p.m., sponsored by Collateral, a new miniseries from Netflix. And we've been having an internal debate. This is not just any regular live show. We're calling it our 10th anniversary show, although I think it's going to precede our actual 10th anniversary of yakking together for... um, like by one month. So we have to decide our relative levels of superstition and uh, whether we're all going to murder each other in a gun battle between March 7th and April 8th or whatever our actual anniversary is. No, I think our first show was, was um, Earth, Day. Uh, Earth Day. So um, six six weeks. Uh-oh. Six weeks for everything to go sideways. But we are going to prematurely celebrate our impending 10th anniversary on March 7th in Gowanus, Brooklyn, uh, there will be a trivia set brought to you by Netflix before we kick off, some other fun surprises, and we hope to see you there. Tickets will become available later this week, and Slate Plus members will get a discount. That's March 7th at 7 p.m. in Brooklyn. Check out slate.com slash live for more information. 
I also want to tell you about another show, Amicus. Amicus is Slate's show about the law and the Supreme Court. Host Dahlia Lithwick explores court decisions, arguments, and the justices on the bench to shine a light on litigation in the time of Trump. Get deep into the legal weeds and hear some of the nation's greatest legal minds dissect what's going on in the courts and the country. That's Amicus, wherever you get your podcasts. All of us have been lucky enough to work with Dahlia for a very long time. And a basic rule of life is if you could be having a conversation with Dahlia, you should be having a conversation with Dahlia. It will be better than most other things you might do with that chunk Mm -hmm. of your time. Uh, And all of you could have a conversation with Dahlia every weekend when she talks to folks on this show. So um, I encourage you to check out Amicus. In Slate Plus today, we're going to be talking Super Bowl ads with Slate's Justin Peters, who reviewed them for us. To hear segments like that and get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and a great way to support Slate. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Julia, can I just uh, jump in here for one second? Please. Uh, I'm going to be having a public conversation with Joe Hagan, author of the new and wonderful biography of Jan Wenner. We're going to be at Bard College Thursday, February 15th at 5 p.m. at something called the Weiss Cinema at the Campus Center. That's 5 p.m., Bard College, February 15th. Me and Joe Hagan talking Jan Wenner. Come check it out. It'll be fun. Open to the public. Cool. Okay. Back to it. David Hockney is a giant of 20th century painting, but a giant of what kind precisely? Uh, the artist has just turned 80 and is subject of a major career retrospective at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Hockney was an art student in the early days of swinging London to camp to Los Angeles, where he became famous. Uh, I, you know, it was maybe a slight oversimplification, but famous for painting swimming pools. Um, he's always been popular and well-known, but not always perhaps totally respected. He was too derivative at first, maybe of Bacon and abstract expressionism, then too figurative relative to the other movements in art like minimalism, and then he was too popular. All the criticisms, uh, in my estimation, have completely run out of steam. He is simply great, and we tried to discover why. To that end, we went to the Met and we toured the exhibit with its curator, Ian Altavir. Ian, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to show the show to you today. We're thrilled to have you show it to us. Uh, Julia and I have both seen it. I was blown away by it, and I would love to have you help me understand why I was so blown away by it. Um, We're in the first room of the exhibit, and Mm -hmm. want to talk a little bit about why you mounted a Hockney show, Mm -hmm. why now, and um, what his work has meant to you, and then we'll talk a little bit about the arc of his career. Awesome. Um, I'm really glad to have you guys here, and I think this exhibition is is really special, actually, because it's the first kind of full-dress retrospective for this great artist in New York City in 30 years. Um, and it's a bit of a homecoming because Hockney's last retrospective in New York was also here at the Met um, in 1988. Um, it was a complicated time then. Um, and so partly I wanted to address some of the um, some of the issues with that exhibition. But it also is um, a celebration too, very much a celebration of this great artist on his 80th birthday. Um, so it was an opportunity, I think, for a whole new generation artists, um, people who love Hockney, to really um, get a better sense of where he comes from and where he actually ends up. Um, and he's still painting. So, 
Yeah. Well, I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with Hockney. He's so iconic. They'll be familiar with Los, you know, his work in Los Angeles and, of course, the iconic swimming pool. I was completely unfamiliar with his origins and you know uh, as an artist in his early work as an artist i didn't realize that he emerged very early on as a star and yet not recognizably as the hockney that we know so talk a little bit about that he became famous before he became david hockney in a sense yeah it's it's an interesting moment and he's so much part of this early swinging london's 60s scene um so he's born in bradford which is in the north of england um in yorkshire in 1937 and in a way, part of the story is this kind of emergence of London as a, as a place to be artistic in the post-war period. And so he gets to London finally in 1959, and he goes for graduate school. He goes for a graduate uh, three-year course on painting at the Royal College of Art. And it's there that we begin the show, and we have, um, we're standing here in front of two pictures from 1960. One's called Tiger Painting, number two, Tiger with a Y should be the first kind of hint that there's more going on in this picture than just a kind of abstract painting. And he's using, in this first year at at grad school, using the kind of language of the day, which is abstraction in painting, but he's layering already on text text references. So the letter E, the letter U, and of course, Tiger refers to that great William Blake poem. And so you see him pushing abstraction already from this very early moment. I want to make one visual observation about the work in this room from London earlier, which, as Stephen said, really is not identifiable as a Hockney by those who know, you know, his most popular mid-career work. And it's, I mean, just the colors seem uncharacteristically dingy and dark, and the the characters, I guess you'd call them the kind of cartoon-like figures in the pictures are a little bit grotesque. They make me think sometimes of, of Philip Gustin type works, you know, that would have these sort of troglodyte like figures. And, uh, and it just seems like that disappears and a lot of the angst disappears when he gets to LA. We think a little bit more about what Hockney's actually discovering about himself as well at this moment. Um, and he is, um, yeah, he's discovering a burgeoning queer sexuality that he's able to explore in London, even at a time when, when that kind of love is supposed to be illegal. So he leaves London behind, even though he's already famous. He's accepted this prize at graduation in a gold lame jacket. He gets photographed. He's in the newspaper. Um, he is well-known and popular, and his shows sell. But he still wants to go to L.A., and people are like, why are you going to L.A.? What's the point? And he, um, you know, you should stay in London. You're popular here. Or as he passes through New York around New Year's 1963, 64, people are like, you've got to stay in New York. New York is where it's at. But he leaves New York behind, too. And so I think part of that is his imagination of L.A. as this place of freedom. But it's not only a kind of erotic freedom, because he's been reading John Recchi's City of Night about gay hustlers and Pershing Square. And he's been collecting physique pictorial magazines. So he has this idea about how fun L.A. might be in that respect. But it's also a place of freedom artistically for him, I think, too. All right. So I've been tasked with describing the next painting we're going to discuss. We're standing in front of right now. It's called A Bigger Splash from 1967. And it's a big square canvas, acrylic on canvas, that is essentially a, a... figurative, very flat frontal depiction of a California-looking stucco house that looks out on a pool. And the pool is close to us here, the viewers. It's this beautiful, solid field of of blue with a diving board sort of sticking out as if the viewer could walk out on the diving board and dive in. And the subject of the painting, The Bigger Splash, is this big 
very abstract looking sort of explosion of lines and scribbles of white out of the middle of the pool. So it's a real departure in the, the flat painting style of the rest, the rest of the painting, right? It's, it's all these very scratchy, scribbly white streaks coming up to suggest flying water. The paint, the kind of underlayer, the solid colors are rolled on with a paint roller. I think, you know, deliberately so that they're as uninflected as, as possible and as flat and solid. And I always kind of play a little game by imagining taking away the splash, taking away the chair, all the kind of details. And what the painting began as then is basically an abstract, hard edge abstract painting. Is, is part of what's happening here an unusual approach for the time? Oh, I think so. I think it's one, though, that gets instantly kind of iconic, right? Um, this painting is used by Rainer Banham, the great architectural historian, for the cover of his kind of historiography of L.A. and urbanism that's published just at the end of the 60s. And so, you know, just a few years after it's painted, so it's already kind of linked so much with L.A. at this moment. He's also, I think, all of a sudden, because he's in L.A. and kind of far away from London now, he's able to kind of ape some of the British abstract painting styles because um, people like Denny or, or Alan Davy, for example, um, are painting these kind of geometric um, canvases in, in sort of bright colors. He's, he's aping all kinds of different abstract painting techniques in essence. And by the time you get to the early 70s with things like Pool and Steps, Le Nid du Duc from 1971, he's actually using Helen Frankenthaler's soaking technique for the, for the pool water so that he thins the acrylic way down and soaks it into the canvas almost like a dye. And that gives you this wonderful kind of watery translucency. Um, but if you cut that part off the canvas and you, you kind of carried it separately, it would be like an abstract painting. You wouldn't know it was supposed to be water unless it were for that uh, kind of Mediterranean poolside. So there's a wonderful kind of tension at a really sophisticated level at this point between abstraction and figuration in the work. And he seems to be able, in a way, to play both sides at this moment, both sides of the game, the abstract game, the figurative game. But he might also be painting himself into a corner a little bit because he then changes very, uh, you know, by the mid-'70s, he's moved on from this kind of realism that he's gotten to. So this, this, this is all kind of working up towards this moment, this kind of monumental moment with these double portraits that he tackles from 1968 to 1972. And um, he decides at a certain point he's going to start this big project of trying to depict the tensions and the psycho psychological kind of depths of people's relationships with each other, particularly couples. And so the first people he chooses are the novelist Christopher Isherwood, who's here with his... Um, longtime companion, the painter Don Bacardi, and they're sitting in their Santa Monica house where David would often go and visit, and um, Isherwood is looking at Bacardi, who is in turn looking out at, at Hockney, or now us, of course, as the viewer, and we're kind of brought into this relationship via that triangulated gaze. Um, Isherwood to Bacardi to us and back to the painting. Given that most of these paintings of groupings seem to expose some sort of desire or tension that the subjects might not have wanted to expose during the sitting, did they tend to not go over well with the people, <laughs> the subjects? I think um, that's a really good question. Um, but in the case of 
Henry Geldzeller and Christopher Scott. Geldzeller takes the, the scene is, is Geldzeller's 7th Avenue apartment um, here in New York, and he's sitting on this fantastic pink, I think we think Charles James couch. It's like a pink velvet sofa that looks yeah. like it's shaped like a telephone receiver with these kind of <laughs> swooping backs. There's a olive green wall behind and then you can see this great Manhattan vista out a single window behind him that uh, just shows buildings, architecture, uh, various eras of Manhattan construction. And then this extremely electrically shiny and actually very abstract glass coffee table with a vase of tulips on it in front of him. And then this stiff in a trench coat. Over at the right. Yes, as if he just walked in the room or into the apartment, right? And maybe is about to say something to Geldzeller. He does not entirely appear to have walked into his own body yet to me. Right. (laughs) Henry Geldzeller was the first curator of contemporary art here at the Met. And he he founded the department I work for now um, in 1966. And here he is in his 7th Avenue apartment in Chelsea. Um, And... He loved this painting. I mean, he loved Hockney. Hockney loved him. Um, they were super dear friends. And in fact, that, that vase of tulips on the glass table, in a way, is a bit of uh, a stand-in for Hockney. Um, tulips, he says, are his favorite flower, and so they become his sort of metonym in this picture. Um, but Hockney, I mean, and rather Geldzeller, loved this painting, and, and there's pictures of him and Christopher Scott, his then boyfriend, standing, posing with this painting. And he's sitting in a chair in front of the painting, a sort of a, a, a meta picture. He's sort of, I think, gets kind of sick of this whole game of portraying things realistically or naturalistically in the space of a two-dimensional plane, right? So trying to picture, trying to picture a volumetric space using the traditions of Western perspective, such as they go back to the Renaissance. Um, this kind of tyranny of the vanishing point. Um, so in um, nineteen, in the late nineteen seventies, Hockney goes back to LA after a bit of time away, and one of the things he discovers is a brand new brand of acrylic paint that's much bolder in color than it used to be in the sixties, and much denser in terms of the amount of pigment that's in there. Let's look at Large Interior Los Angeles, 1988, um, which shows Hockney's living room, um, the, the house he still lives in today, up in the Hollywood Hills. And here in 1988, the year that we hosted the last uh, retrospective in New York, um, he paints the interior um, of the living room of the house. And it's still very much like this today. Um, there's a round table where he eats lunch. There's a fireplace that he has decorated with a, um, a trompe l'oeil regency mantelpiece. So in this painting, you see this faux regency mantelpiece painted just as Hockney himself has painted it in the house, um, where it looks as though it has volume, but it's really a, um, a trompe l'oeil. Um, he, it has this wonderful blue deck that Hockney painted in the early 80s when he was working on sets for the Magic Flute for the other Met, for Met Opera. Um, and he loved this combo of super bold blue and bright red. And so the furniture out there is red and the, and the deck itself is blue. And he's also, of course, here looking at Picasso and reversing 
perspectives, like this chair, for example, at the bottom left, where you can see three sides of it. Um, if you were painting this scene with a kind of traditional uh, vanishing point in Western perspective, you would, of course, only see probably Max two sides of the chair. Right, he basically split the chair open yeah. like butterflying a chicken. Exactly. This, this whole room, to my extremely untrained eye, feels like it's citing a lot of modern painters, including Picasso, and in a weird way hits my eye as less original than some of the earlier stuff, and I can't tell if that's like a perceptual trick to me, and I know that originality may not even be the thing we're looking for in an artist exactly, but I don't, I can't tell if it's just uncanny, to, uncanny to see stuff that is more recent quoted or uh, tell me what I'm seeing. <laughs> no, I think this is this is a difficult moment for I think a lot of Hockney fans, and it was a difficult moment. I mean, I mentioned our last retrospective in 88, um, which, of course, ended with this corpus of work. Um, so as the most recent stuff. And it was not well received. Um, it's done at a moment that's very hard for Hockney, too, in a way. Um, he is spending a lot of time in New York, not only just because of operas, but because all of his friends are dying from AIDS. And... Um, He's losing friends left and right. Um, and it's also not a moment when you're supposed to be painting as an artist, right? So by the 80s, painting is kind of out of style, except for the kind, except for the Julian Schnabels and the um, David Sallies, you know, very few, mainly men, um, working in a kind of macho or appropriationist, depending, style. And so it's an odd moment to be painting, to be a painter. And I think that's hard for a lot of people. And maybe you've sensed that also in the work. This moment has really grown on me though, actually. And I, um, over the years too, as I've actually been working here at the Met and lived, you know, lived with this painting with this interior of his house, which is in our collection, um, trying to kind of figure it out. This idea of painting landscape, especially for California in a way that, um, kind of confuses your perspective and, and also tries to get away from traditional things like Western perspective so that uh, he's thinking of Chinese landscape scrolls as well, which are about this kind of passage through landscape, a narrative temporal movement through a, a kind of mountainous landscape. So it's kind of perfect for the Hollywood Hills, which are, after all, those roads are really curvy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so we were... We're here in the last gallery of the show, which is one I like to think about as showcasing two technological innovations in Hockney's practice in the past decade. And one of them is um, his use of the iPad, and it's something he picked up right away upon its release by Apple in 2010. Um, so here we're looking at a three-monitor, three-channel animation um, that kind of takes us through these views that Hockney would draw or paint or whatever you want to call it on the iPad every morning and every night before he went to bed, every morning before he got out of bed, what he saw outside his window. So all times of day, all days of the year, it's raining, it's snowing, it's sunny, it's cloudy. And um, we can see the kind of process unfold because the app that he was using called Brushes 
would record your stroke and you could play it back. And so Hawking realized that at a certain point and thought, wouldn't it be great to show these animations so that the viewer could see them kind of unfold? Then the next technological innovation um, is something that happened just last year. And um, as he moved back to L.A., so in 2013, he left Yorkshire and moved back to that house in the Hollywood Hills with its blue terrace and pool and lush backyard, he sort of fell back in love with it. And the garden is extra beautiful now, 30 years into his ownership of it. And that terrace is pretty fabulous. And he started painting the backyard. Um, and then last January, he made this painting. On, and this is called um, Interior with Blue Terrace and Garden, which is exactly what it is. You see on the left side, Hockney's living room. There's the round table where he has lunch, the fireplace. And then... Uh, for most of the right half of, or more of the painting, you have that wonderful blue terrace wrapping around and the pool down below and the lush, verdant backyard. But the terrace begins to do something weird on the right-hand side. The perspective kind of starts to bend in or wobble out or something. And it's this one, this painting from last January that made Hockney think about trying to get more of the terrace in and trying to expand it so much that you would basically get a 180-degree view. And how could he do that in the space of a um, four-sided picture? Maybe what he needed to do was what you see on the right there, the last painting in the show, the most recent one, um, painted in March last year, where Hockney has gone ahead and cut off the bottom corners of the canvas. And that kind of forces him to wrap the, the terrace all the way around so that it goes from end to end on almost 180 degree view. And this got him so excited that he ordered instantly dozens more shaped canvases like this. And for the past months has been um, really excited to work on um, revisiting all of these themes he's painted before, Grand Canyons and, and winding roads and courtyards in Seville and all sorts of beautiful uh, landscapes, Mulholland Drive, in this reverse perspective format. And we'll see all of those, I think, at a show this coming April here in New York at Pace Gallery. Ooh. And as he said to, to me uh, and to some friends who had gathered when he was here for the opening of the show, he said, after someone asked how, you know, you're 80 now, he just turned 80 last July, you're 80, how do you feel? And he said, well, you know, when I travel, sometimes I really feel like I'm 80. But when I'm painting, I feel like I'm 30 years old. And if that's how it makes me feel, then why, oh, why wouldn't I do it every day? And I love that, that youthfulness um, that has really reinvigorated him with this suite of pictures. Well, Ian, this was a total delight. Thank you so much for taking us around this exhibit. You mounted a gorgeous one, a perfect one. So Thank you so really much. It was an it. honor, and I'm thrilled to share it with you today. This is up till the 28th of February for people who want to come see it, right? This is open until the 25th of February. So we have a kind of special event coming up on February 13th where Simon Callow and Alan Cumming are going to um, read um, these beautiful letters that were written between Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi as a tribute and a kind of Valentine's pre-Valentine's Day thing about their double portrait and kind of in honor of their double portrait. Um, so that should be fun. That's here at 7 p.m. on February 13th. You can get tickets for it on our website. And yeah, come see the show. It's open until the 25th. We're the last stop. Get your hot knee on. <laughs> <laughs>
Julia, I thought Ian was miraculous and I could have listened to him and listened to him, which is why I spoke so very little. But I did have a big question I want to ask him, and I'm curious whether you felt as though it was answered, which is, you know, Hockney has had a troubled reputation. He was so iconic, so famous, so he was accused of being facile. I've seen this exhibit twice. It had the same effect on me both times, which is I walked away completely convinced that he was a great artist who'd gone through uh, a period of self-apprenticeship in order to become this painter who does something so naturally and so easy. But it, and, and yet I was totally convinced, A, that he was a great painter, and that B, in making surfaces so beautiful and so facile and so saturated with California, the spirit of California, he'd actually done something quite sly and quite deep. I'm curious whether what your reaction was. Yeah, I was sold. <laughs> I was sold and, and actually... Getting to walk through the exhibit a second time with Ian helped me understand the later work. I mean, in a funny way, watching his career is like watching the whole history of art, kind of. He's, he begins to play with the basics, and then he begins to break down the structures and skills, and then he begins to recombine them in different ways. And um, yeah. Yeah, I think I went in not knowing much more about Hockney than swimming pools, beautiful gay men, bright colors. I think I, th- I thought of him as an artist who was maybe too happy to be that interesting. And seeing this exhibit definitely made that assumption fly out the window. I mean, what what, what we saw was so much um, more curious and exploring and um, deeper and sadder in parts. But also, I think with that overriding joy, especially the late paintings and that Mm -hmm. very last room we were in that are paintings that he just made this year that he was actually finishing as the show was being put together and he's turning 80, were especially exciting, not because they were necessarily my favorite pieces, but because they were doing something new and exploring. and, And so it was sort of an uplifting exhibit in that way. It sent you out thinking, wow, you can spend 80 years on Earth being really, really good at drawing and painting and still be discovering new things to do with that skill at age 80. All right. Well, here, here, and the exhibit is up until February 25th. If you can go see it, please go see it. If you can't, uh, tour as much Hackney as you can on the internet or by the catalog, or, but uh, he's worth checking out. All right, moving on. All right. Our next topic makes no sense to me whatsoever, but to help guide me through it is June Thomas, who is, of course, managing Pooba of Slate Podcasts and host of the Double X podcast. June, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. I cannot believe you are in studio. I'm staring deep into your deep blue eyes. Uh, kind of pond scummy green, and okay. uh, I'm a hologram anyway. Oh, so. good, good but um, yes, in the flesh, it's so good to see you. Ditto. Uh, so we're doing something called bullet journal- journaling or bujo, and um, why don't we play a little bit of the video that I was sent to clarify what this is, and that stopped me so dead in my tracks, I wondered if i would show up this morning. Well, and we should say before we listen to the clip that part of why June is here to explain slash potentially evangelize for <laughs> bullet journaling to us um, is that in our very goofy endorsement segment of last week's show, I endorsed these pens. These Can Japanese you say what pens. kind of pens they were again? Who <laughs> <laughs> hero? <laughs> I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Anyway, pens that I believe have risen to prominence on Amazon because they are great for bullet journaling, which I do not do. And I gigglingly and somewhat dismissively described my uh, mystification at bullet journaling. And June chimed right into our email inboxes and said, bullet journaling, don't knock it till you've tried it. And so here she is. It's the only thing that sends me into people's DMs. I get like an inner (laughs) alarm when somebody disparages bullet journaling. Mm. All right. 
So let's listen to this clip that explains the system. Count the amount of lines on your page. Now divide that number by three. With a ruler, draw a line across the spread. Add the months to each box. When you're done, add your page numbers and add the future log back into your index. Okay, turn to your next blank spread. This will be your monthly log. Add the name of the month on both pages. The left will be your monthly calendar. Write down all the dates of the month. This is the equivalent of it. Then add the first letter of the dates. Okay, that's the calendar. The right page is your monthly task list. Write down all the things you need to get done this month. Before each task, draw a task bullet, which is just a simple dot. <laughs> add the page numbers and then add this month back into your index. I mean, the monthly log provides you with a bird's eye view of everything you need to get done in a month and the time you have to do it in. It only takes 17 minutes. Come on, bitch. <laughs> First of all, this is a you lost me at hello moment for mm. those of us who... I mean, I just can't even. The absolute high point is the definition of a bullet. <laughs> it's just a simple dot. Don't don't complicate it. <laughs> oh, I mean, there's I, so I, much skepticism in this room right now, but, you guys. But June, yeah, I, just to kind of paint the word picture for our listeners, yes. you are about to break out into Pentecostal tongue speaking midway through that video. Can you just tell my snake? I need you to explain why, because that was basically dental extraction surgery for the legs. See, I I cannot understand why that would not be like, you know, if you don't need a system, if you are so organized, and I know, Steve, that you're so intensely organized that you don't need any help. But what's what's so to me, it's it, it is so soothing. It's so there's so much potential for a better life contained in those simple words. Mm. Well, can we just let's back it up a little bit? Yes. How did you discover bullet journaling? Why do you do it? And what difference does it make in your life? So, as you may or may not know, I am a fan of stationery. I listen to a number of stationery podcasts. And Ryder Carroll's initial video, the one that we heard a clip from, is actually a kind of reworked version. His original video kind of set the stationery world on fire. Uh, and then years later became this like international sensation that he somehow managed to kind of keep a connection to, which generally doesn't happen when you are the inventor of something that then gets a, especially something that's a system rather than a product. Um, but um, I am not a, a, like, even though in this room, it's like, I would be the equivalent of like, you know, the most proselytizing, most deep boujoer that ever existed. So I think Julia's actually a little bit boujoey. I feel a little boujo connection there. Um, I just think that it's a very flexible system of organizing and keeping track of the things you have to do in your life. And yes, some people take it to a different place, which I actually think is about like a very easy form of creativity and self-expression or just like passing the time in a in a gentle way. Like I just don't see anything negative about it. There's definitely Oh, well go ahead, Steve. No, 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 I've talked about <laughs> Steve was like rising to he the was, mic like a like a whale preparing to breach. It was very majestic. <laughs> I was going to say like a cobra. But yeah, sure. <laughs> I'll take cobra. Um, no, Junior, you're so right. I mean, I I have uh, in extreme stationary interests mm. and uh, a predilection for obsessive to do systems. It mm-hmm. is merely that. 
this system is not for me. But I think there is part of what makes bullet journaling so mockable is that if you look up Bujo or bullet journaling, the hashtags on Instagram, you'll see people who do not seem to be swiftly managing their lives with a bunch of uh, bullet ta- bulleted tasks marked by a simple dot. They instead seem to have gone down a deep fucking wacko rabbit hole mm-hmm. of making illustrated to-do lists that have like curly cues and hand-drawn calligraphy for each month and um, that seem to emphasize uh, tidiness in order in the collection of one's tasks rather than perhaps the execution thereof. No judgment. But so they seem to emphasize like the journaling part of bullet journaling rather than the bullet part of bullet journaling. Or even journalism. honestly the the lettering, like writing for writing's sake. Um, you know, if you have managed to develop really nice brush lettering skills, that's where you use them, you know, and it's... Wait, sorry, what's brush lettering brush skills? Lettering, I don't even know guys. what that is. <laughs> brush lettering. So that's the other thing. You were talking about, you know, thin tipped uh, pens last week, but I think the real boom in for that bullet journaling has set off is brush lettering pen, brush pens, and so brush lettering is that scripty style that's everywhere these days. You know, where the so, width of the line varies. Yes, right? exactly, and you, and you know, it's it's actually something that's relatively easy to learn, and when you've learned it, it's really it looks really cool, and it's good to do. And it's I admit that like. I've had that sniffy judgment of like when you see people, if you've ever, I mean, I never, ever sit watching YouTube videos that are planned with me or journal with me or bujo with me. Never, ever, ever. But sometimes if you happen to be in the room when those are on, you'll see people who just essentially scrap, rip out the page just because like there was a little, they didn't like the way that curly cue went. But here's the thing. So what? And I, I, even though some of the it's not exclusive like dudes doing this even in this room you know but i think there's a lot of that is kind of a little bit uh, it's such a girly thing to do they've got nothing to do except you know write write words with scripty letters and like so what you know it doesn't i just think it if it's another form of 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 just passing time, self-expression, using pen and paper, which can be very relaxing. It's a kind of Zen practice. To me, it's very similar to adult coloring, which is like, what's the point of it? Well, just to, you know, use your hands doing something and, you know, make something pretty maybe, but just to take your mind off all that's going on. Well, I also think, I mean, I I should be clear. I come not to criticize, but to comprehend. (laughs) Um, But I also do think that one thing I like about bullet journaling is that it does recognize that there is an aesthetics to the to-do list, like using the same pen for the tasks and the same pen for crossing off the tasks. And Mm -hmm. I don't always do it that way. Sometimes it's a crumpled whatever, but the the part of the point of a to-do list is to impose order on a chaotic world and a chaotic set of responsibilities and... um, it it should be noted that the primary male cult of getting things done is getting things done. Right. And and both of these systems have no doubt been used by many people of many genders. But getting things done is just like an aesthetically ugly system. It, 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 there's however, how many folders are you supposed to have? 31 folders or something? Yes. There's the You're supposed to have literally just like one of those grotesque stand-up files on your desk with a folder for each day yes. of the week i can i could yeah. I, I couldn't get past like how heinous are those those stand up manila file things I mean, i'm there's not some using nice a system ones like on that. the market but sure <laughs> but wait what i don't understand why it's all so analog why isn't there just a freaking app well see that's the thing you you'll never will you're not an analog man but i think a lot of people wait, do wait steve's not an analog man <laughs> well he says he's not i'm finding a little bit skeptical i take him as his word but whatevs 
You know, if you find analog note taking or using pen and paper or, you know, typewriter or whatever, monstrous and silly, well, don't do it. Like, it's fine. Nobody's forcing anybody to do it. I just don't get the the animosity. No, 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 no. no. You, You misconstrue my point, which is if what's the balance between surely some people just want to get they just want to be more efficient yeah correct yeah. they want fewer things to fall through the cracks yeah. why would that person if that's their only goal choose analog over digital would they well, in other words is the tr- is there something about the way you must focus on something that you can't immediately click out of into the universe of twitter or facebook or whatever i mean that kind of you know that, that, that there's just something so inherently focusing about handwriting mm-hmm. that actually does conduce to efficiency, or is it that it has another dimension which has nothing to do with efficiency, which is a kind of aesthetic pleasure and a kind of mindfulness that, that really is not utilitarian? I think all of the above. I mean, some people, not everyone, but some people do find writing things, the act of writing to be uh, effective in helping them think in a certain way. It triggers thought or slows them down or just sends them to a different place than looking at a screen or a phone. And I think everybody I know has some kind of hybrid system that includes digital and analog, like it's not one thing or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are every piece that's about, you know, stationary or pens or whatever, there's always these studies about, you know, writing it down. It does do something. And I always, I'm never really sure whether that's for realsies, but if it feels like that's good, you know, if we, we, we constantly trick ourselves and we're like, oh, this really, like, if I do this, whatever this is, I have really, I'm very creative. I can do these things that I typically find difficult. I don't know if it's a real thing, but if it, you know, whatever works. Oh, whatever works. I totally agree. I mean, I would just hazard that maybe it's nostalgia and not just nostalgia, but like a real hankering for the actual benefits of non-digital media that's maybe caused the Bujo craze at this moment, right? I mean, it seems like a moment where Silicon Valley is talking about what it means to be addicted to apps and people are trying to cut down on their time online and are seeing that as a salubrious thing to do. That's kind of in the air right now. And so I could understand why you know, making your own elaborate calendar rather than buying a printed calendar could have a feeling of, of craftsmanship and ownership that's important at this moment. I mean, I think to the to the question of why do it yourself, I mean, it is, to me, that is, yes, you're right. And it's kind of funny to, you know, act as if drawing out the names of the, you know, the days of the month is, you know, innovative. But I do really like that it allows your book to be very flexible, that you can, you know, you're not stuck within a limited range you're you're not wasting paper because you just kind of spaced out that month or that week or whatever and the flexibility is really key and also it's it's really kind of fun to write it out every month i'm just going to i'm not going to let you see because some of these are like kill steven but like look that's lovely that's from march 2017 you know and I, I love you see this is a this is fountain pen i know exactly what i think that is. this is a this is um a, a, a pilot friction those are uh, um, erasable. I mean, like this is re- look, and there's my future log. Oh, look, that's where I'm going. To, you know, like it's. I did, you see, I didn't go very far. But you know what? I'm just going to give everyone one tip. Indexing is the key to happiness. All your notebooks. Always put an index in your notebooks. Then you can find out. You can find your notes. Don't you want to find that insight that you had that you scribbled down? This is so exhausting. <laughs> God, I need a blood transfusion. Here is the real reason I can never do bullet journaling. Um, 
It's the it's the open and closed carrot. Like the closed carrot is scheduled is event scheduled and the open carrot is migrate forward or back or back and forth. But like I have I have um whatever aphasia is for symbols for like I was never good at greater than, less than. Like I can never remember which one is which. <laughs> Me either. So, I still so get it wrong all the time. Those two symbols are like already hard to read and then those are not opposite those are not opposite meanings. Sched task scheduled and task migrated forward. I guess can I t- can I just reveal something? I don't bother with the symbols. Okay, I just, that's like that's to me. That's the great thing about bullet journaling. Like, yeah, we call it that. Um, some uh, somebody who did a book that kind of ripped off the system called it the dot grid journal. I mean, it, we can call it anything. It's just a very basic like make your own planner system. And I love that you can just you know what I just don't use those. But I will say one thing. Yeah, your I br- style could be anything, right? It could be yeah. a bunny head. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I brought this because I love that one of the things that bullet journaling has has made that all of these lovely stencils are now easily available. So you can always like, this helps you write the perfect <laughs> a carrot. Oh, my God. Or, or you could do like, if you want like some flags or some, look, here's a nice, I mean, you can do your do your squares really well. I mean, some are obviously are in my own personal bullet journal, but like that. There's so much potential there. Doesn't that excite you? When I yes. when I I've never you, coveted anything as much <laughs> as that stencil. This is going really to a dark, dark place. This is weird. This kinky shit now. This it, could you change sort your of life. had me, but now I see it's a fucking cult. <laughs> yeah. Duh. <laughs> All right, we are getting a helicopter, June. <laughs> I think I could talk Bujo all day and night. You know it, but. Uh, thanks for coming in and talking to us about this. Thank you for listening to me with an open heart, Steve. Come to facebook.com slash culturefest, culturefest, and, and show us, we showed you our bujo, you show us yours. <laughs> Sounds so wrong. <laughs> All right, well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse day. Nah, 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 nah. Steve and <laughs> I don't I never know how to respond to my complex naming <laughs> procedures. Uh, okay, so my endorsement this week is because we had two somewhat highbrowish topics, the visit to the Met to see Hockney and Phantom Thread, I'm going to go low for my for my endorsement, something that just really cracked me up this week online because it's ridiculous and stupid and incredibly well done. So it's on the site Bad Lip Reading, which I'm sure you all know, usually a site for um, political speeches being redubbed into whatever ridiculous words the lips seem to be forming. But they also sometimes do little one-off cultural bad lip readings or um, or music videos. And that's what this is. So it's a music video made in 2016. It went viral at the time, it looks like. It's got 54 million views, but it probably has not been viewed in a while, maybe. And because of our current new um, Star Wars obsession in the culture, I thought I would shout out to it. It's called Seagull Stop It Now, a bad lip reading of The Empire Strikes Back. And it's essentially the scenes, the Yoda training scenes from The Empire Strikes Back cut together to form a music video in which Yoda and uh, and Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker sing back and forth to each other. I cannot describe how incredibly well done the lip reading is, <laughs> how catchy the song is, how stupid the entire concept, which is essentially that Yoda is telling Luke Skywalker the story of the time some seagulls came and pecked at his head. <laughs> anyway, it's it's beautiful to watch. And uh, and everybody I've sent it to has walked around singing it for the rest of the weekend. Oh so Seagull Stop It Now, a bad lip reading of The Empire Strikes Back on YouTube. We'll link to it on the show page. That sounds awesome. Julia, what do you have? Uh, I have a joint 
endorsement related to the work of a FOP friend of the program, John August, the host of Script Notes, the screenwriting podcast I frequently discuss. John August is a screenwriter by trade. That's why he is one of the co-hosts of the screenwriting podcast. However, he has spent the last year or so writing uh, the first book in a young adult trilogy. That book, Arlo Finch and the Valley of Fire, comes out, I think, sometime in February. Um, And I have read it, and it is great. And if you are the sort of uh, grown-up who likes to read young adult fiction, I would commend you to read this particular one. It kind of takes the uh, all of the tropes of YA, which is like often set in an alternate universe or in Europe. If you think about the big ones recently, Philip Pullman, Harry Potter, um, and then Hunger Games is sort of in like a fake alternate dystopia post-America. This is just like straight up set in Colorado. And the stand-in for a Hogwarts-type institution is a Boy Scouts-type institution. And so there's sort of this, like, plucky American version of, like, levels and progression. And anyway, it's great. So you should read the book. Um, However, if you are one of our listeners who is not that interested in reading young adult fiction, I can say that no doubt you are still interested in listening to podcasts, at least one, because you listen to this one and are listening to it right now. As part of the launch of the book, John August has done a podcast with Wondery, which is the podcast shop behind Dirty John and a couple of other big shows um, that's like a reported how do you make a book uh, miniseries. I think it's going to be six or eight episodes talking about how you write a book, how you sell a book. Um, In the most recent episode, he talked about font selection and cover design. and, And anyway, it's a really interesting deep dive into literally how books are actually made and sold. Um, And it's a fascinating and great listen. So that podcast is called Launch. And I recommend that you either listen to the podcast Launch or read the book Arla Finch and the Valley of Fire or both as it suits you. Downloading it right now. Um, no, John August, anything he does, I want to keep up with. That's great. The best part of it is he describes the experience of being edited, which this always surprises me because my husband works in um, TV. But the the person who writes the script is the only person who touches or edits the document in Hollywood. Like if you have notes, if you have edits, you don't just go in and like fix the sentence. You're like, could this scene be a little bit more like this? Or we're trying to achieve this here. Whereas in editing for books and editing for journalism, we editors just ride roughshod all over your guys' beautiful prose. Give me that word doc. Let me put the red lines in. What if your lead is this sentence? You know, we get to like kind of get our hands in the dough of the thing that we're making. And he describes in a very amusing, at least to me, way, the shock of like handing the raw document over to the copy editor and having the copy editor like actually propose alternate words. especially surprising because Hollywood writers, I think correctly, are always complaining that they're sort of the least seen and least appreciated part of the filmmaking process. they're also unionized and um, uh, fights over who wrote what and who deserves what credit and what money are are you know, endemic to the enterprise. And so it's all heavily regulated. So everything comes in the form, not that I've written for Hollywood, but as I understand it, things come in note form. Yeah, I'm not sure if those two practices are are related or not, although perhaps having each document only having been touched by one person actually helps arbitrate those disputes, kind of. Anyway, he's just such a great talker. Like, if you want to spend more time in John August's brain, which I always do, here are two great opportunities. I'm psyched to listen to that. Um, all right, so I'm going to endorse the. I'm just. This is this is both unoriginal and, and flagrantly um, disloyal to Slate. 
but not really at all. I'm just going to endorse something from the competition, um, the Daily Podcast from the New York Times, which is just fucking amazing, right? And two, I know it has 200 million downloads already, so there's not a soul out there who hasn't done it. But I mean, there may be someone. I I've never listened okay, to so it. Okay, so I found the one person in the world slightly further behind the curve than me <laughs> <laughs> sitting to my right. I hadn't listened to it. I'd been told a million times it was really great. I was like, yeah, some dry thing from the New York Times just telling me about what's going on. No, it is so freaking well done. It's both deep and economical. Comes in typically around 20 minutes. Uh, the host, Michael Barbaro. I mean, I want to come back either as Reynolds Woodcock or Michael Barbaro, but it's a total freaking toss-up. He has – no? He has such a – Shoot. <laughs> the problem with Steve being in the studio is he can see my face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got, Continue. He Continue. has such an amazing bedside manner. Wow. Podside manner. You're Bud Manor. You're not a Barbaro guy? No, I do. It's a great achievement. I really like the show. He has a very hard job, which is to just like respond to the amazing things Times Journalists find. And he does have a tick that amuses me now that I've noticed it, which is of just saying, wow. <laughs> he has this like, wow, deadpan. That's, that's, that, and once you notice it, you can't stop hearing it. But he's great. He's great. I love the daily. You're, yeah. The mere fact that it has a voice is news to me. Like you, Steve, I had sort of pictured that it might not even be the same journalist every day, that it would just be someone droning through the headlines. Yeah, we're reading their story yeah, monosyllabically. But no, it's it's it's. Uh, it's really, really good. I mean, I, I cannot emphasize it enough. It's, it's, it's a real achievement, and um, people should check it out. And then, very quickly, I discovered a girl band um, that brought me and my daughter close closer together as we were taking a long drive. It just came on KCRW or whatever. Girl pool, all one word, kind of folk punk, uh, cool, really cool harmonies. Sort of sounds like it comes from the deep past known as the 1990s kind of sounds like it comes from the deep future where women just p- p- tell us all to fuck off <laughs> even better <laughs> they've refined the ability to tell my gender to fuck off to a point of exquisite uh, perfection anyway girl pool i really like it all one world word girl pool if your fans come and let me know about it at facebook.com slash culture fest dana thank you julia thanks thanks so fun to tape in the same room now i see the faces you make at the things I say. <laughs> You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's at slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash culturefest. We do have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cultfest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Daniel Schrader. We do have an executive producer of Slate Podcast, the redoubtable Steve Lichtai. For Dana Stevens and Julie Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll, we'll see you soon. Looking.